0: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Baer's interview with the director of Palm Springs, Max Barbaco, and the screenwriter, Andy Sierra, plus
1: Will Mavity's interview with the editor of the film, Matt Friedman. Here you are, standing on the precipice of something so much bigger than anyone here. But always remember, you are not alone. I don't think that we met. I'm Sarah. Niles. Hi. Hi.
0: Hi.
2: It's gonna be a beautiful wedding. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You! What is going on? Hey, get out of the water!
3: Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about.
4: That I might have heard about?
1: Yeah.
3: Welcome everyone back to the next Best Picture podcast. We are talking with the writer and director, of the new film, Palm Springs. We have Andy Sierra and Max Barbaco. Andy, Max, (laughs) what a crazy world we're living in. How are you doing?
0: Doing all right. You know, all things considered in the world, but uh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Weird time, you know?
3: (laughs) It is, it is a very weird time. And you know, because of the pandemic and so much else that's going on in the world, so many people are stuck in place. Not really able to move on with their lives, or at least maybe not in the way they planned, which makes this movie a particularly apt one for to be released in this moment in time. So, my first question for you is Did you plan this? <laughs> Andy did it. Uh-huh.
1: This is, this is a yeah. solo hit job. Yeah. I, I, would, I would be scared if I, if I, if
0: I have that much power um no I, no one person should have that much power i don't believe anyone has that much power so uh yeah yeah no
3: it i i you guys have gotten i think very lucky with the, the timing of this film it feels like a real movie of the moment um which leads me to ask where did the idea for this screenplay come from
0: i mean it really started back in june almost almost i think exactly five years ago Mm. uh max and i we knew we knew we wanted to do our first movie together uh we did not know what it was going to be but we wanted it to be something that was contained you know one location maybe so we went out to palm springs for somewhat of a little lost weekend and just talked uh and out of that weekend we settled on palm springs being the location what it was about we did not know but what we did know was like we had the earlier idea of this character of Niall, which was, you know, he's a, he's a character that is just born out of conversation between us. Uh, as we just talked about our deepest shame and fears and love and all that fun stuff. Um, and then we kind of just like <laughs> let the, the character lead the way over the next two and a half years of talking about this and writing various versions of this. Uh it did not begin as a as a as a time loop wedding movie at all, uh, that's for oh. sure. It began as just like this weird, weird character piece.
3: <laughs> that that's really interesting because the the time loop seems so central to the idea, but it was in fact the character that came first.
1: Yeah, totally. So yeah. It was very, uh, very much creating that character and mining like Andy said, his deepest insecurities and fears, and then kind of try, which are, you know, commitment, very scared of in- intimacy, sincerity, um, does not believe the more, the world is meaningless nihilist. like what would be the, the personal hell of that person? Probably being stuck with yourself, living the same existence over and over again. So kind of, it didn't even like, I think it was a combination of that. And like, this can be a cool thing to play with for a first movie. Um,
0: that yeah. <laughs> led us there
1: and then <laughs> it really wasn't it's like we didn't which i think is a good thing we didn't there there were moments i mean we spent a long time on it and overthought everything and explored a lot of stuff mm-hmm. but in that initial um conception it was really like just trying to entertain each other and make each other laugh and and kind of dig deep and understand ourselves um a little better and do something that felt fun
0: yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, that was the freeing, the freeing thing about it all in the beginning was like, <laughs> no one else cared about me and Max, but also it was solely just for us two. And we're like, well, I mean, we, we, we were not beholden to anybody with this movie. So that's why we just put kind of a bunch of ridiculous things in this movie um, yeah. that we're just kind of exploring our own uh, our own existence and the meaninglessness of it all.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, all that definitely comes across. It It manages to be both, hilariously funny and really makes you think and, and feel for this guy. Uh, so, you know, mission accomplished, I think, um, you know, obviously the, the, the time loop movie is a thing. It's been done before, most notably in groundhog day. Um, when you, when you were writing this, as that idea came to you, how aware of it being similar to other things, were you and, did you consciously lean into or away
0: from that in any way? <laughs> I mean, like t- again, it like, like, kind of naturally went in that direction mm-hmm. throughout the discussions and then throughout the, in the writing of it. And then there was a point where Max and I like, I can't remember it, maybe that date, but it was, you know, maybe a year into it. We're like, mm-hmm. should we do the timeline thing? It seems like maybe it may leading that direction. And, you know, maybe we should have thought about it a little more, but I think both of us were like, <laughs> okay, sure and we decided to, <laughs> to try it uh but to me you know in groundhog day um bill murray's character in a sense figures out the meaning of life and he's given the gift of uh the, the, of breaking the loop the day and mm-hmm. um and he gets to start the next day so one of those early jumping off points for this was like okay let's, let's say this character goes through all of that and figures out the meaning of life um, or what he thinks the meaning of life is and, uh, nope, you're still stuck. You can't, you can't get out of the day. So like, mm. then what do you do? You just find meaning in, in, in burritos, beers and floating in a pool. Um, and so <laughs> that was, that was a helpful, a helpful jumping off point in the beginning where mm. we, you know, this movie is kind of a sequel to a movie that doesn't exist. Uh, there, there's a whole other movie here of the when Niles first walks into that, that cave. Um, but yeah. that's, that's been done by, by smarter people than us. And so we've <laughs> yeah. it to
1: And ground all day and on, it's kind of like, a, it's such an evergreen genre now, which is super cool that it's mm. become the genre unto itself. It was like, all right, was, we're playing in the genre. How can we like stay as far away from anything else that's been done in it as possible? And that's kind of, rather than just for fear of polluting it, being aware of kind of the precedent and then just trying to put our own spin on it was kind of the thing I think at the foremost um, of our minds while doing it. And that means what Andy was describing, kind of throwing, throwing us into this world and then also simply swapping another character into it too. Yeah. Um, So they're stuck together.
3: It's really fun to see him interact with this character who is just figuring out what's going on for the first time and adjusting to life in that way. Um, and one of the things that I really loved about this movie is that, um, that that character played by Kristen Milioti, she ends up doing a lot of quantum physics research in her quest to break this time <laughs> loop. Um, t- did you also do any quantum physics research while writing this, or did you just like kind of make it up or say like, well, we know this little bit? <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it was an like,
1: before he before he went to AFI, so he was very well, yeah. very well versed it was in the, science. Oh, so, really? No, a different path, and then and then
0: NASA's funding was cut, and then I just decided to go in debt, go into film school.
3: Well, I mean that's the
0: logical next no, choice, right? Uh, I, mean, I mean, to, to, to be honest, uh, I would say like the, the the draft that came to the Lonely Island guys um, after you know the the couple years of us just just us doing it. In mm-hmm. um, our own little bubble <laughs> i may be too like maybe we're leaning too much on um just following the like a youngian journey and mm. uh playing with those archetypes and 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 rom off and be here now that like the science was actually no part of it it was more like leaning into the idea that we just were not thinking about the science and then once the lonely island came on like it was they were actually once kind of encouraged us to like Kind of dig deeper into that side of it all, which then, of course, sent me down this spiral of of YouTube videos and string theory and the Couchy Horizon and finding <laughs> these <laughs> kind of ob- ob- obscure science papers. Which it's all very fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah. So, so it's based on real life. It, yeah. It all came on their end that suggestion too, just from which I thought I think helped the movie immensely. Just like it made sense. On a character level, that you know there would be an attempt on Kristen's part on the Sarah role to kind of go figure that stuff out to try and rise above the the situation, which just like kind of opened the whole film up as well. It was equal parts kind of strengthening that character and indulging some of the fun quantum physics stuff,
3: yeah, that's very cool, very cool yeah um so so this is your uh your you both have worked on short films together, and Max has done a documentary, but this is your your first feature length narrative fiction film. Um, did Did you find anything different in the process of writing and creating something longer than you've done previously? or was there anything that you learned working on the shorts that helped you with this as a much bigger production?
0: I, you know, simply on the writing side, uh, I think getting to do shorts at, uh, at AFI together, I treated this the same way where the soul, you know, we, we talk, we put everything on the table. We, we act as each other's therapists in a way, go up and write my, my sole goal in the shorts, but also with the movie was, I want to make Max laugh and make him feel something. Mm -hmm. And he will come back and say, when things are not making him laugh or feel something, so there was not like we, we had a, a nice runway had doing shorts together, but the approach to writing a movie, it was still like we we were two kids playing in a, in a slightly bigger sandbox.
1: Yeah. Agreed. And it's it, very, yeah, for the production side. Yeah. 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 yeah go, you can talk. It's just a, it it just, a, it just, it just is a marathon instead mm. of a sprint, you know? And I think it's even doing a feature versus shorts. It just is just for the way that I know my mind work and works and probably Andy's too. It just was, very liberating to not be confined to the short form, um, which is great, but it just, is, it's, um, it's a different muscle. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, the movie is great. Uh, thank you guys for, for coming on and talking to us about it. Um, before we go, what, what is the one thing, if you could pick one thing that you want people to take away from this movie right now?
1: <laughs> there's purpose in caring. There's purpose in caring about stuff and trying your best to care about stuff and make a difference and, and um, rise above your circumstances, even if the world uh, feels very dire and meaningless.
3: <laughs> and love, I couldn't love. have summed it up better myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, what, what he said.
3: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Congratulations on the movie. Thanks, thank you, thank you. I can't keep
1: waking up in right here. Everything that we are doing is meaningless.
3: I hope it's not all meaningless. Kind of thing, At least you have each other. Nothing worse than going through
2: this shit alone. There's a bomb in the cake. Don't worry. I used to be a bomb guy. Stand back! Everybody, you're listening to yet another episode of the Next Picture Podcast. I'm with Mavity and I have with us uh, AFI professor and acclaimed editor Matthew Friedman. You heard his work, or you saw his work in last year's *The Farewell*, and he's back again, cutting uh, the Sundance breakout hit *Palm Springs* this year, starring Andy Sandberg. So, Matt, thank you for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this is a, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty wild film. It's uh, it really seemed to connect with people out of Sundance more than almost anything at the fest this year. So uh, how did you end up on Palm Springs after The
4: Farewell? Yeah, I had cut a very, very small film uh, for one of the producers, Dylan Sellers. And um, it was actually a recut that I did for him on that film. So he got to see kind of like a before and an after, which makes it really easy to discern what an editor's talent is. And he saw how fast I got it from the before to the after. And he was producing this film, Palm Springs, and said, you know, you should really come in and you should meet Max and Andy, who was functioning as one of the other producers. Um, so I went in and I met them both. And if I remember correctly, Burritos were involved in the meeting. <laughs> um, it's a good way to close the deal. You know, I just I, I walked out of there just going, yeah, this is you know, I the script was really good. And. Meeting both Max and Andy, and obviously I knew Dylan, but both Max and Andy were, they're really those kinds of people that you could, if you didn't know who they were and you met them just at some random party, you would never guess that they were involved in Hollywood. And those are always the best people to work with because they have a good perspective. They understand they're not, you know, we're not saving lives here. We're just trying to make people laugh. Um, And that first uh, reaction definitely bore out because, you know, working creatively on that movie and shaping that movie was uh, nothing but a joy.
2: So when you say working creatively, I mean, obviously you were hands on completely uh, afterwards, but were you involved in shaping the process creatively before cameras even started rolling?
4: No, I... I try and stay away from that, just like I try and stay away from going to the set. Um, First of all, at the run up to production, uh, directors are typically typically getting so many notes from so many different directions. The last thing they want is one more voice that they have to allocate, you know, brain space to understand. So. I'm not I in in my career, I have not been called on very often to do that sort of pre-production stuff in terms of while they're shooting. I also like to step back from that as well, because oftentimes when you're on set, you see and hear things that can influence you later in post that, you know, don't necessarily show up on the screen. Yeah, Um, I did this recut once of this, it was a first time director and he was doing this romantic comedy and he had called me in because they had had sort of not like a, you know, a full blown test screening, but they had gotten, I don't know, maybe 75 people at a school somewhere and they had played the movie for them and the audience, it just, it, it fell completely flat. And the audience was really like avoiding, uh, the director as they were Lee, leaving the auditorium. Oh, God. So I came in and the first thing I started doing is what I always start doing is just going through and taking out everything that is not in support of the story. And I was going through and tightening. And, you know, once you get all that extra shit out, the the jokes just magically start working. Um, so things were getting better, things were moving faster, things, you know, he was laughing at stuff that he had never laughed at before. And we got to this one scene that was, uh, it, it was a very, very funny scene. The two protagonists have gone to try and convince somebody to do something. And it's not important to my story, but it's just a very funny scene. And then after that scene, it cuts to them sitting in their car outside, with this sort of stunned expression on their face, like, what the hell just happened? And the camera does this sort of push in on them. So you see them through the front windshield and it pushes into them. And then when it lands, they are like, what the hell just happened? And so the first thing I did was I took out that dolly move, which was maybe, you know, six seconds. it completely took it out, pre-lapped their first line of dialogue and – sewed the scenes together like that and when i first showed it to the director he was like you know and this was maybe after we had been working for a couple of weeks he was like oh oh no no you can't take out the dolly shot do you know how long it took us to get and then he stops and he goes oh, i get it <laughs> i get it take it out you know and had i been there on the set and had i seen how hard they had tried to actually get that shot and how much effort it took to get it right. Maybe I would have left it in. Maybe I would have been biased in that way, but the audience wasn't there on the set and they don't know. And from their perspective, it was six seconds of nothing funny happening. So instead of rolling straight from a scene where you're laughing all the way through the scene, straight into the next laugh, you have this giant pause in there. Um, So, yeah, I try and stay as self-contained as possible. And the side benefit of that is, uh, you know, I know myself and that I have no self-control regarding craft services. So I would weigh (laughs) 40 pounds more if I made frequent set trips.
2: Yeah. You know what? In a COVID era, too, you got to worry about people coughing on the snacks and reaching it. So Mm -hmm. you're you're really keeping yourself extra safe now. Mm -hmm. Yep. I guess using that mentality – um did the structure of palm springs as it existed on the page change significantly once you started working on it like did did we always enter the story on that particular run through of the day for andy samberg's character or was it pretty different before it got to you
4: okay do you know the answer to this question is that why you asked it no i genuinely don't okay I'm so glad you asked this question because (laughs) no, the answer is no. That is not how the film originally began as was scripted. And um, we, up to the very end of of editing, were carrying – in fact, I had two different versions of Reel 1 that I would carry. And as I would make changes in one of them, I would make changes in this other one too – and the only difference was the way in which the opening unfolded. And we test screened both of them. Both of them worked. Both of them resulted in audiences, you know, in, in basically the similar uh, scores to the movie, but they were different in a really key way. One of the openings explained what the movie was right off the bat, you knew it was funny you were laughing immediately and you understood and this is a spoiler so if people are going to watch the movie mm, well <laughs> i guess probably everybody knows it's a time loop movie uh so maybe it's not that much of a spoiler but the 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 one opening you know the one that let you know it was funny right off the bat uh it also sort of really helped you understand that it was a time loop movie about four minutes earlier than the alternate version. And the alternate version was a little more in enigmatic. You didn't really know what was going on. You saw weird things happen, but the weird things were happening before you understood you were in a time loop. So you had no grounding. To really know what why they were weird. You just knew they were weird. So you had to hang in there a little bit longer. Um, it didn't start off with quite as big a joke, although the argument could be made that the joke that we have up front in the other one maybe feels like a slightly different, makes you think it's a slightly different movie. You know, it's a very, we're we're talking about the scene where um, Niles is jerking off watching his (laughs) girlfriend, you know, pack or try and find the ring, which, you know, when you watch that scene that, that close up to the beginning of the movie, you go, oh, okay, this is a sex comedy, which it's really not. Right. You know, which is, was one of the things that we were thinking about. Um, And ultimately we, we chose to go with the one where that scene is up front, where you do understand it's a loop movie a little sooner and where you get to laugh at a scene a little sooner. And your very first big meaty scene is not something where you go, Whoa, what the fuck is going on here? It was a very close call. Uh, but, yeah, that was, that was the only major structural thing uh, that changed during the course of editing. Beyond that, the script was so strong, Yeah, we didn't really need to do structural changes, and the performances were funny enough and the chemistry good enough that structural changes weren't necessary. Um, and again, the original version as scripted was written very well as well, and it worked. And it wasn't bad. It was just, it's an example of how you can tell a story in two different ways. And there is no one right or wrong way to tell a story. There's just different ways to tell yeah. stories. And ultimately we went with the one that we felt was maybe a little more accessible.
2: Well, yeah, I, I loved how it opened. So <laughs> I think you guys made the right yeah. call. Um. So yeah. y- you said you pretty much kept everything the same, but... Uh I guess since the cat's out of the bag that it's a time loop movie, uh we get to see Samberg um go on a variety of adventures and have a lot of different cuts to different experiences he's had in the past during a variety of moments in the film. Uh were there any moments that the two leads live during this time loop that were shot that you guys had to cut that you liked?
4: Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember because we actually finished post quite some time ago. You know, I don't, I don't think that there were there were moments where when I first cut them, and the moment I'm talking about is the sort of the big montage, which I guess would be equivalent to the. You know, they're they're falling in love montage where they're just going through the day over and over again and goofing around. And it's all these little vignettes of how they're fucking around with the other people at the wedding. And, you know, normally the structure of a montage like this is you you have one song, right, that covers this montage. But the way this sequence was designed, it was a song montage and then in the middle of it you have this big dance number <laughs> which has its own music and then after that you go back to a montage and so I was kind of like and and even Max and the producers were like how is this all going to work because now we're talking about 3 songs like We can't have a song and then break for a different song and then go back to the first song. That's going to feel repetitive. And then three songs is just going to feel like overindulgent, isn't it? (laughs) And so we went into the first screening. We left everything in for the first screening because we wanted to see if there was, you know, certain things that people didn't laugh at that would make our decision easier of what to take out and people just laughed all the way through, and it was the damnedest thing because I looked at that, we all did, and we said this should not work, <laughs> like this breaks so many rules, and yet it did. So <laughs> we're not going to argue.
2: Yeah, and that that montage, that was kind of what I was thinking about because I I love how that's structured, and it uh absolutely floored me. So one of the other things I wondered about is in something like this, where you're trying to maintain a degree of, you know, you don't want to break the illusion. So it does need to seem like they're literally living the same day. I'm sure you guys had a good scripty, but how was it trying to deal with continuity when you, uh, in post, because I'm sure there were things that were missed and you want it to seem like they're revisiting the same identical day? Uh,
4: It it was pretty easy, actually, because in the instances where they're revisiting the same day, we use exactly the same footage as long as they're not in it. Um, So, you know, even though they may have had an interaction with somebody that happened four times, they only shot it once and you're literally seeing the same thing four times. Beyond that, my personal philosophy is – if the movie is moving at a proper pace, nobody notices continuity. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you do, you don't have time to think about it. So I, I tend not to worry about continuity. Um, and it always makes me laugh a little bit, you know, when I look on IMDb and they have that goofs section. Yeah. And people will find some of these mistakes And go, the filmmakers didn't notice, blah, 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 blah. Well, a lot of times, you know, we did notice. uh, And we chose to let that go. Yeah. Because fixing it would have involved maybe six, seven or eight extra seconds. And if I can tell the same story in eight seconds less, I'm going to do that. You know, that's what will make the movie feel like it's really moving. And. You know, to circle back to your other question about stuff that was cut out, um, there was, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was cut out, as there always is. But it it tended to be more inside scenes. So scenes would get shorter. You know, there would be lines that were scripted in order to convey information that the characters were able to convey through their acting. So we found we didn't need The lines were redundant and expository. And then, you know, one of the push and pulls of this movie, uh, like Groundhog's Day before it, um, you know, if you're familiar with the history of Groundhog's Day, it actually is so interesting because it sounds like a lot of what went on behind the camera in that movie kind of went on behind the camera in our movie, too. In Groundhog's Day, there was this real serious push-pull between Murray and Ramus. Ramis wanted it to be funny. Mm -hmm. Murray wanted it to be philosophical. And there were arguments about that all the way through the movie – through shooting and production and even the writing. Murray took over at one point and was working directly with the writer um, and steering it the way he wanted. And ours, it wasn't so much arguments because everybody – kind of knew the tone that they wanted but it was a balancing act all the way through editorial trying to you know get strike the right balance of the sort of nihilistic existential philosophy elements of the film and the slapstick comedy so for instance one of the scenes that was affected the most by trying to find that balance was the scene at the campfire um, it's a great scene. Yeah, after, it, it is. And they're both so good in it. And after, uh, in, in its original cut, that scene was probably over twice as long. And there was much more philosophical discussion about how each of them, you know, basically the film is a story about two broken people. Mm -hmm. Right. And in that scene, they both are discussing each other's philosophies on life that had led them to be broken. And when it sat in the middle of that movie, especially after that hugely funny montage, it was just too much. It was just too much. And so a large chunk of that, um, a large chunk of that came out. I think that was for the best. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, But it wasn't bad, Mm -hmm. you know. A lot of times the stuff, well, not a lot, but, you know, sometimes the stuff that gets taken out is good. It's just not needed or good for a different movie. Than the one that we're ultimately making,
2: yeah, because I mean ultimately this does lean more towards the hilarious comedy angle than the philosophical one, and i I think j- that perfect amount there really worked so well what you know kind of going in keeping with that, tell me a little bit about what you did to bring this a little further to make it more of an overtly co- comedic film. Cause I noticed you had some of those, uh, I, I don't want to see Edgar Wright-ish, but some of those really funny smash cuts that are very explicitly comedic. There's a uh, one involving teeth I'm thinking of specifically uh, mm-hmm. a little bit about the creation of kind of the pace of that and tweaking this to make it more explicitly comedic.
4: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I actually, yes, you're absolutely correct that a lot of that can be helped or ruined through editing that comedic timing. I actually don't treat comedy moments any different from non-comedic moments. Like, you might look at The Farewell and you might look at this film and and think at first, at first brush, well, these are two, these are cut two very different ways, but actually at the heart, they're not, they're cut in exactly the same way. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier. You know, when I go on and do recuts, I cut with the attitude of every frame matters, literally down to the frame. Right. Um, And as I go through and cut in my mind, I make every little moment and every little sound and every little stutter and every little breath and every little eye blink blink, uh, in essence sort of defend itself as to why it should be in the movie um, and what function it's serving. You know, one of the things I teach uh, in in the class at AFI is uh, imagine a scene between character A and character B. Character A asks a question. Character B answers. There's basically three, well, here are three different ways to cut it. Number one, character A asks. Character B takes a beat and answers. Here's a second way. Character A asked. Character B takes a beat, but it's a much shorter beat and answers. Here's a third way. Character A asks character B answers without even hesitating, almost even overlapping character A. So those say two very different things, three very different things about character B. And the first one, if he takes a long beat, he's really thinking about the question. He doesn't know the answer. It's maybe taken him a little off guard and he wants to give a good answer. Um, So he takes a beat and answers. In the second one, a much shorter beat. It's less important for him. It's maybe something he's familiar with, uh, so he just answers right away. And in the interruption one, uh, it could mean that he's lying and he already has a story worked out. Um, it could mean that he's irritated, you know. But they go just taking out what what maybe the difference of three to six frames can completely change the attitude in which the answering character has in that moment. So when every, that was a long digression, but getting back to comparing (laughs) the fair, the farewell in Palm Springs, I I cut them both in exactly the same way, which was going through and looking at all those moments and only, only taking exactly the number of frames that were necessary and no more. So, Even though The Farewell has these moments of extended pauses, right, where nothing is happening physically on screen, those were tailored to the exact frame. And we talked about this when we talked about The Farewell. And there is new story information being conveyed in all of those frames. You know, the idea that the characters are stuck, isolated, alone, having to sit with their emotion. Same process for both comedy uh, and drama. And once you do that, and this is the other thing I try and tell the editors, once you do that, editing becomes easy. Like, Mm. it's easy. It's meticulous. It's painstaking. But it's easy. Like, all the problems drop away.
2: So I feel like I just got... um a uh, podcast version of a AFI lecture for for free. So, <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Um that's I can see I can see why you're a good professor too. And it it worked very well cuz th- this film flies along and there's not an ounce of fat on it. Yeah,
4: and you know, quite frankly, I there are there are <sighs> There are a couple of massive logicals, yeah, but yeah, but that's not the point. <laughs> exactly. Because when it moves at the pace that it does to just maintain it, you know, entertainment, you don't have time to think about those massive logicals and you may notice them, but we have you laughing immediately after. So you go with it. One of the biggest mistakes I see in younger, less experienced editors is they give audiences space to think about problems because all films have problems, all Mm -hmm. of them. They give audiences space to think about those problems or the audiences use that extra space where where no new story is being uh, conveyed to ask questions and wonder about things that we as filmmakers don't want them wondering about because it's not part of the story we're trying to tell.
2: Huh. Yeah,
4: that's yeah. <laughs> I used to do some editing
2: myself. So I, I wish I would thought about some of this sooner. Um, I guess the last qu- couple questions I had, um, you don't have to tell me this cause it might spoil the illusion of the film, but do you, do you personally have an idea of how long you
4: think that character was there? You know, it's funny because the other key mistake that young editor that I see young editors making, and I do this all the time at AFI because AFI, the model is they cut theses, they cut Mm -hmm. thesis films. right? Right. So I will go through their films and I will stop and I will say right there, you're on this character. He's thinking, tell me what exactly is going through his mind. and. A lot of times the answer will be, I don't know, <laughs> to the response to which is, well, then you better find out because there is no way to cut that moment if you don't know exactly what is going through that character's mind. Yeah. So I, I do know the answer to that <sighs> because I asked both Max and Andy because he was the one who acted it. Uh, Because I needed to know that information in order to cut his performance accordingly. Otherwise, you know, there might be stuff in there where I'm thinking it means one thing, but Andy was thinking it meant something different when he was acting it on the set. And the result of that is going to be a moment that's mushy and unclear and unfocused and not sharp. So I do know the answer to that. And I because I asked him and. I do know that he does not he, – he wants people to come to their own conclusions on that. Max and Andy both wanted people yeah. to come to their own conclusions. Uh, but he, Andy, had an intention uh, when he acted it, and he told me what it was, and I'll never tell.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you know, just like, that, like that. I'm sure
4: people will, uh, will ponder and try to work out a formula. What do you think? How long did and really it, here here is where I asked it there is a moment there's a moment in the movie where it's in the campfire scene where uh Kristen miliati's character uh Sarah asks Niles what he did for a living I mean, he can't remember and he he says he he says he can't remember and uh Andy happened to be in the room at one point when i when we were working on that scene, and I turned to him. And I just, I, I, I asked, are you lying or are you telling the truth? And that's what um, led to this discussion. And that's, I guess, really what it comes down to is, do you believe he's lying in that moment or do you believe he's telling the truth? And what made it such an interesting moment and the reason that they did not want to make it clear is because what you think about the veracity of his statement in that moment goes directly to what they're talking about in that scene. Right. The walls and the defenses and his philosophy in order to survive, just to be in the moment Mm -hmm. and forget the past. Like it's all tied in to themes of the movie. So, that was the one of the philosophical aspects that um Max really wanted people to think about for themselves so that's why it's never explicitly stated how long he was in there for
2: oh i think that i think that's for the best and uh you know unlike groundhog day i, I don't think anyone's going to be able to come up with a framework but for the record i thought he was lying in that scene because later in the film it's revealed he remembers certain things about his life before that I, I think he wouldn't if he had actually been there so long he forgot everything
4: i don't yeah. think you would remember that but well, yeah I, that here's a mind fuck for you okay. um the scene that you're referencing where he remembered those things was there were other versions really of that shot
2: huh
4: okay so, that's all uh, i'll say about that
2: oh god damn it okay <laughs> 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 now i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to think all this over again well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Before you go, have you decided what's next that you're going to work on?
4: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm working on a film that I'm likewise very excited about, and hopefully we'll be talking about it at some point in the future. It's uh, It's a film called The Starling. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd and Kevin Kline and Timothy Oliphant. It's uh, directed by Ted Melfi. Um, of hidden figures yeah, who may truly be the nicest man in Hollywood. I mean, oh that. my gosh, it's un- <laughs> unreal. Uh, so we're working on that. We're in post-production on that. We're waiting for some visual effects and then we'll get back to mixing. But Netflix, um, has purchased that movie. Uh, I think it happened like a month or two ago. And it will be coming out in theaters and obviously on Netflix uh, sometime at the end of the year. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. And similarly, like kind of similar to The Farewell, it's a comedy about uh, a very heavy death subject. <laughs> so I seem to be getting niched as editors <laughs> – Often do.
2: Yeah, you got to do another. Uh, you got to do another. John Tucker must die to compensate at some point.
4: Mm, yeah, <laughs> at some point. Right now, I'm I'm really enjoying the meaty stuff. Well, y- you're you're certainly making your mark. Although, can I say one more thing? Well, of course. Um, because I know I know there's going to be uh, Hollywood people uh, listening to your podcast. My uh, my dream job. Is full on musical. Cool. So if there's anybody out there listening, who has a full blown musical project they're getting ready to put up, I'd love to come in and talk to you about
2: it. Well, take it a step <laughs> it further. Is... Why don't you? What is your favorite, uh, your favorite musical that at least in recent memory has not been made into a film?
4: Oh my gosh, that has not been made into a film. Oh, I thought you were gonna ask me. No, no, because no, you're you're pitching yourself
2: to cut one.
4: Yeah. No, that I can't say, because what if I what if it's someone who is not, you know, who has one other than that? But I will say what my favorite is. Okay, go ahead. Uh, My favorite of all time, I think, has to be Moulin Rouge, um, because you watch that movie and you go, how could any group of people, much less Baz Luhrmann, conceive of something like this? You know, something that is so detailed and so rich and so full. And, you know, I sometimes get overwhelmed by the idea of every frame matters. But imagine when you're starting with a completely blank slate and applying that philosophy, literally everything, casting, music, song choice, color, um, contrast, setting, extras, costumes, hair. You know it's it's astonishing it's an astonishing awe-inspiring work just on it on it technical
2: yeah and the cutting in that oh my god like the rock sand numbers' yes. insane
4: yes yes I had the great fortune when I was an assistant editor to work on a couple of films for Jill Bilcock the editor of that movie uh, Australian editor um, and similarly just a I couldn't find a nicer woman, um, learned so much from her.
2: Yeah, no, that I mean, that is a prime example. Whenever I, I see people on, on Twitter posting an out of context clip from a film that has a lot of cuts and they're saying this is badly edited, Moulin Rouge is a prime example of you can have a scene that is cut within an inch of its life and it works, you know. Yeah. That, so I, I'm a big fan of that. Well, Matt, thank you yeah. so much. Um, it's It's been a pleasure talking about this. And I hope we haven't spoiled the movie for anyone who's listening. Uh, if you haven't seen it already, it's amazing. And you should go to Hulu and watch it immediately. Uh, and uh, look forward to hopefully talking to you again for the Starling, Matt. So thanks so much.
4: I'd love it. Thank you, Will, very much. Absolutely. Enjoy yourself.
2: Stay safe.
0: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with the director of Palm Springs, Max Barbaco and the screenwriter Andy Sierra, plus Will Mavity's interview with the editor of the film, Matt Freeman, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Palm Springs is being released by Neon on July 10th via Hulu. Be sure to check it out. Thank you so much for listening. As always, and we shall see you all next
2: time.